This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Ain't no closing time, ain't no cover charge, just country boys and girls getting down on the farm. University of Illinois is getting down on the farm and looking at some uh, revenue from some investments, as Carol mentioned earlier, in the business of corn. Corn. Ellen Ellison joins us right now, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Illinois Foundation, as well as Janet Lauren, uh, who brings a story to us. She's our Bloomberg News endowment reporter. And uh, Janet, let me uh, kick, kick, tell us what's happening here. So the University of Illinois Foundation um, is looking to add more agriculture into their portfolio, mostly through uh, land donations. The school already has uh, a lot of land that they've gotten from donations almost over 100 years. And a change in policy uh, is hoping, uh, after a change in policy, the school is hoping that uh, farmers will donate additional land. Um, they have roughly 17,000 acres across about 25 counties in central Illinois where they're where you see uh, planting of corn and soybeans and uh, Ellen could you tell us about your first visit to one of the farms and what you saw and what really impressed you sure good afternoon everyone um, well when I started in this role five years ago I had really no previous experience uh, either spending time on farms or in agriculture investing. So this was uh, brand new to me, and it's it's not really a typical endowment uh, asset that you hear a lot about. Certainly timber and mining are much more common in most endowments. So when I was taken out to one of our donated farms four or five years ago, uh, it became very apparent to me that Farming uh, was not your great-grandfather's farm. It was very high-tech, and I was impressed by how um, advanced the machinery was and how um, few people, you know, the, the labor requirement was uh, relatively low, even on farms as large as uh, 80 to 100 acres because of the important influence of technology, both in terms of planting seeds, uh, drones to determine level of irrigation and um, fertilizer use. So it's a very high-tech space. Very high-tech. Um, but you guys ultimately care about returns. What kind of returns um, have you seen on these kinds of properties, uh, Alan? And from what I understand, too, you guys want to make farmland about 10% of your endowment portfolio. That's right. So we, we currently have across the university, as Janet said, about 17,000 acres. The foundation's position is currently around 51 million of donated farms. And we've had a 10.7% total return over the last 12 years, of which 3% is the, the kind of the average annual income. So we think um, for an asset class, especially one, if it is a donated asset class where our basis is uh, zero, we think that this is a very attractive um, near-term return. Uh, I was blown away when I did some early research to understand that over the past 60 years, farmland has had the same performance as the S&P. Um, with a standard deviation uh, less than half of the S&P. So that really got my attention. 
Yeah, um, it, it's an interesting asset, and it's, you know, literally in your backyard. <laughs> What's taking you so long here? I mean, uh, it's, it's obvious agriculture has been, uh, you know, part of University of Illinois' uh, curriculum as well across the state, and I wonder, you know, why this is, why now? Well, I'll tell you, um, the endowment world is uh, populated by a lot of really smart, competitive people, and I think we're all trying to find um, our circle of competence, that edge, uh, that strength that that can distinguish us, and certainly um, many storied programs like Stanford have done very well in venture capital, and uh, through kind of a a real effort at cross-disciplinary work across the faculty, across their alumni base, et cetera, and the endowment. And so I thought, well, what if we could, over time, because I think this is a 5, 10, 15-year type of project, what if we could really do the same thing for ag at University of Illinois? Right. Plus, we have, you know, we have the resources. We have the people who are really good at managing these relationships, and most farms uh, in the Midwest are not run by the owners. They're really run by the the farm tenants and managers. And so those relationships are super important to the ultimate success of the farm. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I also think about, you know, when you think about investments, land, right, there's a limited supply. Uh, and uh, the world keeps getting bigger and we need to feed the world. Ellen, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Ellen Ellison, Chief Investment Officer at the University of Illinois Foundation, on the phone from Urbana, Illinois. Janet Lauren, our endowment reporter. Bloomberg News. Thank you, too. Well, interesting times in the oil and gas business right now. Rising oil prices are usually a good thing for the oil service companies, none more so than Schlumberger. David Wethy joins us right now on Bloomberg News, U.S. Energy Reporter, with a look at Schlumberger earnings. David, how were they? Hey, uh, they were pretty good. Uh, they were better than uh, than analysts expected. Uh, so uh, they, they well, That just means the out. analysts were wrong. <laughs> they undersold. <laughs> but, but generally speaking, what was working for Schlumberger in the quarter? Well, so uh, obviously uh, everyone was expecting North America to be good. We're seeing the U.S. shale boom. Uh, but, but beyond that, uh, you actually finally for the first time uh, in four years saw the international rig count slightly start to tick up. Um, for the last three years uh, before that, uh, it, it kept going down. So uh, you're finally starting to see a turn internationally. And for Slumberger, where they get uh, two-thirds of the revenue uh, outside North America, that's a big deal for them. So you finally start to see uh, stable enough oil prices to where countries around the world can begin to start to uh, drill again. Well, that yeah, sales up. Oh, sorry, Carol. Yeah. Sales, sales up fifteen percent for these guys. Profits are adjusted. Profits up seventy percent. Yeah, I mean, w- one of the things that Swamijay has been saying that they want to do is they want to get out of the, the, the work that's sort of commodity uh, kind of work that anybody can do. And so uh, they're really pushing for uh, more technology, uh, more of their own sophisticated kind of work so, so that they can charge a higher uh, premium for that. And they gave one example of that today where they're getting out of something that they've been in for 30 years, uh, seismic shooting, uh, which is basically shooting uh, sound waves down through the water and on land. Um, basically map pockets of oil underground, uh, and they feel like uh, that's the kind of work that they can't do to charge any kind of a a special premium for, so they're uh, exiting that piece of the business. So, David, is the story based on what we've heard from Schlumberger so far, that basically all of a sudden now they've got some pricing power in the market uh, because there is some strong demand also for crude? Yes. Uh, 
Uh, experts will say that, although Solmage is a lot more coy when it comes to actual uh, questions of pricing power because they don't want to get uh, slapped on the wrist or, or even worse for uh, somehow signaling pricing and, and being in collusion with um, other service companies if it's a small market around the world. Uh, but but the, the thought is that uh, as as things tighten up in the oil market, that, that their services will be in more demand and they should be able to push prices higher. If I can follow, though, I'm just curious, because we've seen oil go higher, whether or not you're going to have more people coming into the market at this point, and that's going to start kicking up supply big time, and that could put some pressure, though, on pricing. Yes, uh, definitely a danger there. Um, you know, the rising oil prices uh, attract more, and, and even those who have been holding back uh, feel like, well, maybe is now is now the time to kind of uh, kick in some more. So uh, it's 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 going to be a, a wait and see, uh, but uh, definitely the rising oil prices is, is going to possibly attract more to the oil market. So, you know, as we see this, are we seeing places, you know, with with a higher oil deck here, one would think these trends would continue with more. What do they have to say in the conference call? Uh, so they said that uh, that certainly there will be uh, more drilling uh, around the world. It will be slow in the beginning. Uh, part, of the, part of it is because they just simply have to um, bring more manpower around the world, bring more equipment online around the world. So it's going to be slow going in the beginning, probably first quarter, and then second and third and fourth quarter uh, will be a lot more of a aggressive ramp up as far as uh, growth goes. Hey, I'm always curious too because we've seen some um, activity, some uh, talk from the Trump administration about, uh, you know, opening up offshore drilling and so on and so forth. I know that there's been pushback and so on and so forth, nothing official, but I'm just curious, do companies, energy companies, do drillers um, and the big oil companies, do they need more places to drill at this point or is, do they have some pretty active uh, areas right now to play with? You asked a great question because right now offshore is too expensive. So uh, really, I mean, the, the places that are available to produce that have large amounts of barrels uh, that they'd love to get is available and legal to drill in the Gulf of Mexico, but they just are not doing it right now and elsewhere around the world uh, because it's way more expensive to drill offshore. So, you know, whether these other places are opening up, maybe that shows some kind of promise down the road. But right now, shale, you can't beat the cost of shale and, and what you can get out of it. So, um, yeah, right now, it seems like that may not really offer much of a hope for the oil industry at this point. And it, it's also interesting, too, that, you know, a lot of those those offshore areas where, there, where drilling is allowed have not been uh, profitable to drill. Some of the shallow deep wells uh, uh, that particularly Chevron off of the coast of Louisiana was drilling just haven't had the kind of success that they did you know, 15 years ago. Exactly right. Uh, you know, I, 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 I should say, I mean, technologies have gotten better over maybe the last 15 years to where you can drill better, uh, but even so, it's still really expensive, uh, especially when you compare it to shale. So, you know, companies are, are constantly evaluating what dollar they can spend either offshore or on, and right now the, the needle has been pointing way more towards onshore. All right. So can we assume, based on what Schlumberger, that other folks in the drilling sector, they're going to do as well? And, and uh, you know, this could be a good earnings season, if you will, uh, for the oil guys and the drillers? That's the thought right now. Schlumberger is widely seen as the bellwether. And so because of their presence, not only around the world, but in North America. So Hal Burton uh, will report uh, Monday morning. And, and they're the not only the largest fracker, but they have a, a bigger presence in North America. So we'll see a little bit more granular detail about what the uh, financial health is like in shale. But generally speaking, uh, how Schlumberger did could spell well for other service companies as well. Schlumberger up 13% this year, Corey. 
Um, I love my oil stocks. I, I mean, know I don't actually own these stocks. Because she's such a companies. slick kind of guy. The, really? I know that was wow. lame. <laughs> she went there. David Wethy, thank you very much. I love talking uh, Bloomer to David. News, U.S. Energy Reporter. Always yeah. glad to have you on. Uh, really interesting stuff going on in the oil patch. You're listening to Bloomer Markets on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Corey Johnson. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Corey TV. She's at Carol Masser. Once you get started. I also can't stop Shaka Khan. I know better. And Rufus. You don't want to stop either one of them. No way. But uh, uh, retail may be grinding to a halt as we know it. The dominance of Amazon, uh, both in the world of e-commerce and generally in the world of retail, is affecting lots of retailers. Nonetheless, Patricia Nakash continues to invest in retail uh, as a general partner at Trinity Ventures uh, right here in Silicon Valley and uh, uh, with a lot of success under her belt. Uh, Patricia, what, what is working in retail? You know, so, you know, you look back at 2017 and, and Amazon dropped a couple bombshells on the retail world. The first one was uh, their acquisition of Whole Foods. The other one was their announcement that they were going to start delivering prescriptions or, or providing prescriptions. And I think that was a signal uh, to, the, to the retail world that there was no vertical that was going to be, no retail category that was going to be left untouched by, by Amazon. I think it's really spurred a lot of creativity among retailers, um, among traditional retailers and among, you know, upstarts, uh, meaning, you know, online, you know, e-commerce companies that are also uh, setting up physical footprints as well. And some of the things that they're doing that are really interesting, you know, one is, you know, in-store events, um, kind of creating a real experience in the store. Um, and, uh, you know, again, you know, I think, you know, Walmart, you know, during the holiday season, they they established um, sort of like three uh, themed parties in their stores. And they sort of got the memo that they needed to make things in their stores more interesting. Um, and I think that that is also what a lot of, uh, you know, e-commerce companies are doing with their pop-up stores, kind of creating a, a, a you know, one-time you know, or, or limited-time ex- uh, physical retail experience. Um, so that's one thing that's working. You know, it's funny. We just did a story on I- IKEA over at Bloomberg Business Week, and they talked about, you know, here they are. They've had, like, a great model. It's done well. But I think the last five years, not so much. They're slow to the e-commerce world. And so now they're embracing maybe a smaller store model. They're doing pop-up stores, and they're also thinking about selling goods through the Amazon channel. It's kind of interesting. When you look at startup companies and so on and so forth, does everybody kind of either bring up Amazon either as a competitor, as someone to, you know, copy, or someone who that they're going to eventually have to work with? You know, Amazon is on everybody's mind, and, you know, I think that the, the rule of thumb is that if you're going to be competing against Amazon head-to-head, uh, you know, trying to out, out Amazon Amazon, that's a bad place to be. And so where you want to be is, is where it is, is sort of, you know, uh, uh, in areas that, you know, are, don't play to Amazon's strengths. And those areas could be, um, you know, your own brand, your own branded product, um, you know, vertically integrated uh, experience. Um, you know, Amazon is, is kind of like infinite, you know, shelf space of all products. Um, so that's, you know, for sure, you know, trying to find areas where Amazon is not dominant. High-touch experiences. I mean, I think we saw, you know, Stitch Fix go public. I think they're an example of a, you know, of a startup that uh, took advantage of the fact that um, there, is no, there is no consultation, there is no stylus support in the Amazon shopping experience. Um, and, that, and they were able to thrive 
by providing what Amazon uh, does not. It's not in their not in their uh, you know power alley. So to that, um, are there sort of demographic things too that work? I'm I'm thinking of some particular. Carol, I haven't told us tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I will be at the San Francisco Westfield Mall leading a scavenger hunt of seven 11-year-olds. And so I'm wondering what the mall concept is that, that appeals to 11-year-olds or if there are other demographic trends uh, that uh, are, are working in retail. Well, you know, for sure, I think retailers are worried about, you know, millennials and younger. I mean, these are demographics that have grown up, um, you know, with the Internet, with smartphones. You know, I mean, it, you know, a third of e-commerce sales over the holiday season were, were fulfilled, you know, were, were, were purchased on mobile devices. So what is high on their, on their minds is how do we, uh, you know, uh, establish a relationship with, with these younger demographics? And, um, and so I think just what you described is a perfect example, the scavenger hunt, get them into the mall, get them, you know, uh, get, get that foot traffic. It's interesting. We, we recently were talking to a startup that um, is uh, developing products in conjunction with YouTube stars, putting them in, putting them exclusively in bricks and mortar stores in order to drive foot, tra- foot traffic. And you know that's a, that you know this is exclusive product that 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 the fans of these YouTube stars could not find on Amazon. They could not find online. So I think I think retailers are starting to get clever. They're starting to get creative. They're trying to figure trying to figure out um, you know better better ways to compete. And I think you know have a great brand, have a great product. I mean that's kind of how I shop. I don't love going to malls, but you know you find something that's a really well-made product. Maybe it's a little different, uh, and you know you kind of you go to their site or whatever, uh, and that really kind of keeps you you keeps you going back and driving business, I guess. Um, cool stuff. Thank you, Patricia. Patricia Nakash. She's general partner at Trinity Ventures. They are, of course, in Silicon Valley, and she joined us on the phone from there. They've been uh, you know early stage investors, Corey, in companies like Zulily, Blue Nile, Starbucks. Those worked. Yeah, Starbucks. Yeah, one on every quarter. Blue Nile. Let's not talk about Blue Nile. All right. This is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. It is time for the drive to the close. We're just uh, about 10 minutes away. David Dietz is founder, president, and chief investment strategist at Point View Wealth Management. $340 million in assets under management. And David joining us, back with us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Looking over your notes here, you, like many others, uh, are upbeat about the market environment, despite the run that we've seen, despite valuations. David, how come you're, you know, among the many out there and being upbeat here? Well, you know, we, as we started thinking about 2018, we started looking at valuations and we thought, gee, how stretched can valuations get? And then, um, you know, a, a miracle came out of uh, nowhere where we got the tax reform. We didn't think we would get tax reform, that the health care 
bill had floundered, and there it was. And I think now um, analysts are looking at what that actually means for corporate earnings and saying, wait, um, what we thought was overvalued is now certainly reasonably valued now as we see the reduction in the tax bills, the potential for stock buybacks, dividends, and expansion from money brought back in overseas, and even the additional um, money in people's paycheck after they pay taxes um, all makes for a stronger economy, stronger corporate earnings, and I think that's given a second shot in the arm to this market. Well, I mean, if, 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 if the valuations were overstretched, if there was uh, too much P and too little E, and we get more E, that means if the market stayed flat, they would have fulfilled those uh, valuation uh, hopes. But if, if the valuations keep getting pushed up even further based on this hope for earnings growth, uh, we could be right back to overvalued again. Well, that's that's right, and, and we may get there yet. I think what you're seeing now is this confidence is beginning. Yes, I've got confidence. an air horn in the office, David. I just thought I'd make sure that when I start to nod off, someone blows the air horn in this office. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, so, you know, the other thing, of course, is uh, all the analysts said, you know, there was optimism, but there wasn't exuberance. And it seems like we're starting to push that exuberance envelope here. We're starting to see huge inflows into all sorts of funds, mutual funds, ETFs, um, the stocks generally. It seems like the retail public is now getting very interested. I think we're also seeing a lot of money coming in from overseas as economies stabilize overseas, and people say, well, we've got some confidence to invest. Where do we go? We're starting to see a lot of money coming in from from Europe, for example, and Asia. Our Lisa Bromwitz was uh, with us before, and we were talking about the high-yield market, though, and she said we've seen some significant outflows as of late. And, you know, it makes you scratch your head a little bit and say, well, wait a minute. Uh, you know, typically we see high-yield, or high yield rather, or historically we've seen high-yield move higher um, in step with gains in the equity markets, and we're not seeing it. Is that cause for worry, perhaps? Um, well, you know, it's not a helpful sign. Uh, certainly, when you look at a 20% plus return on the major market averages last year, and it was closer to 5 to 6 on high yield, you can also read that as a, as a bit of a sign of greed. I mean, why stick with high yield when you can get um, three or four times more in the stock market? Certainly, um, the margins between government bonds and high yield bonds are at record lows. Um, often, people in the credit markets are a little bit more hard-nosed about valuations than um, stock investors. After all, eventually, a a bond is going to be redeemed at par. Let's not get too carried away here, unlike where you can go with stocks. And so I think that there is a little bit more caution there. But, you know, I'm not sure I'm ready to say that's heralding uh, a big pullback in U.S. equities. Bill Rhodes sent a note, formerly of... uh Citigroup, and he he said it to Pim Fox, and Pim was, shared it with me yesterday. And he said there are mounting uncertainties from prospects of rising U.S. budget deficits, interest rates, and inflation, to gradually tightening monetary conditions uh, in time in Europe and in Japan, to slowing growth in China as the government there confronts severe financial challenges. You know, are you at all? He's saying that we could see some kind of correction between 10 and 20%. He says it's probable, probable before the end of this year. Are you at all preparing any of your investors for some kind of significant sell-off this year? 
Well, we have to stay ever vigilant uh, for every buyer out there. Someone is selling. Um, there's a whole host of risks. Um, we have seen this market go up for a record amount of time without even a 5% pullback. You know that is going to end at some point. So what, in terms of mechanics, we're constantly rebalancing to our equity targets. In terms of those risks, absolutely. I think he's put his finger on it, particularly the interest rate risk. Um, you know, you've got a situation where um, with the tax cuts, we all have more money to spend, but there was no corresponding government spending cuts. So more money chasing the same goods and services, what does that ultimately spell? It spells inflation. Inflation pushes interest rates up. The Fed's job is to crowd that in. The interest rates start moving up. That reduces the present value of of everything. On top of that, we've got a new person who's going to chair the Fed early next month. It's a recipe for some showdown between the Federal Reserve and interest rates and ultimately this runaway bull market. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And, and, and just really quickly, uh, big caps throughout here for you, as you see as big beneficiaries. Just about 30 seconds left. Yeah, you know, absolutely. We're, we're looking for the franchise stocks that haven't gotten away for, uh, with themselves. Um, we're looking for, you know, the Exxons in energy, which had a very strong dividend. Healthcare, it was off last year. Mm-hmm. Who needs defensive health when you've got a, a runaway economy? Pfizer looks good with their very attractive uh, close to 4% dividend. David Dietz at Point View Wealth Management on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, let's take a look at some of the stocks on the move in the Friday trade. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. Uh, Charlie breaking down the closing numbers. S&P for the week overall up eight tenths, almost nine tenths of a percent. Dow up one percent. NASDAQ up one percent. Small caps up about one third of one percent. S&P, though, on this Friday, 379 names in the index higher today, 123 lower, three unchanged. Corey, I want to talk a little bit about Apple. Uh, A closely watched Apple analyst whacking about 23% off his initial projections for iPhone 10 shipments, citing weak Chinese demand. Yeah. Uh, This story coming out of our our reporters uh, in Asia. This is uh, an analyst over at KGI Securities. Forgive me. I'm going to mispronounce his name. I believe it's Kyo Ming-Chi. And he put a note uh, outdated January 18th. He said Apple should move 62 million units of its most expensive smartphone over its lifetime down from an earlier estimate of 80 million. Um, so he's the latest in a series of downgrades since December as analysts are kind of reassessing the global reception for uh, Apple's really most advanced device there. He expects production, by the way, to stop sometime this year as Apple rolls out newer versions in the second half. I'm waiting for a newer version. I want a bigger one. Anyway, Apple shares down about half a percent. They were as low as 1% today, but uh, bounced off those lows. $178.46 a share of the close. Stock's still up about 5.5% this year. I'm talking about a little um, a company, Cambridge Mass. It's about a 400 million market cap company, but it's 
Uh, worth noting, the stock was about 10% at one point today, closing up 6%. Uh, AVO Oncology. So really interesting company that uh, is attacking cancer um, with, a, with a, a genetic focus. So they, they create a genetic model of a cancer cell and then figure out genetically how that cell um, more modifies and modifies again as it, as, it, uh, as it changes and mutates and then creates a drug based on those mutations. Well, they've had some success and they announced it today at a San Francisco uh, ASCO geointestinal uh, 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 gastrointestinal cancer symposium here in San Francisco, and they talked about this particular study of a drug that they're calling Tivozenib, because why would they call it something? They never useful? call it something easily. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, specifically effective for uh, patients who are suffering from an advanced, unrestrictable, uh, hepocellular, heptocellular form of liver cancer. Wow. Um, and the survivability uh, is up to, after six months, of 58%, whereas it had been 25% after 12 months uh, without the drug. So really positive signs from this phase two study. The stock was up, uh, but really good hope for people suffering from this uh, liver cancer. Hey, I want to talk a little bit more about General Electric. Uh, we've certainly talked about it a lot already in 2018. Um, stock down 13% today to $16.26 a share. That's pretty wild. Uh, it was off 45% in 2017. GE plummeting again. Uh, a report from Deutsche Bank questioning whether the manufacturing company's latest problems will force it to raise capital by either selling shares or maybe further cutting its dividend. The company facing a cash squeeze and a growing and really growing debt pressures, particularly after disclosing a substantial charge related to an old insurance business. Uh, Deutsche Bank's Alice John Inch, excuse me, saying today in a note, he says there's a high probability of quote additional unforeseen cash events that could undermine the lending units already poor financial position. So, ouch. Um, and let me give you one more real quick here. Uh, Bungie. The, uh, Is it Bungie uh, or Bungie? I don't know. All right. Potato, potato. But a big agribusiness food company, uh, $11 billion market cap, uh, at least right at the close, right before the close, Dow Jones broke some news that Archer Daniels Midland is looking to take over for the company. Um, and so uh, this, you know, Glencore, remember, made a, an effort, an overture mm-hmm. to Bungie last year. Right. But uh, um, the ADM uh, making this bid on this company and the stock flying uh, in the final moments of trading, uh, closing the day up 11%. All right, let's get to the volatility index, if we may. Forgive me, I was just looking sure, at some let's. numbers. Uh, the VIX on this I love Friday this part is with down. the volatility. All right, it's down 7.5% in today's session, closing at 11.29. I was just quick doing some crunching. The VIX for the week is up 11%. Abwork? What? Numbers crunching. I thought you were doing crunches. No, 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 no. Although I should be. Uh, for the week, it's up 11%. And for the year, it's down 7.6%. But nonetheless, closing on this Friday at 11.29. This is Bloomberg. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson! Speaking of crunches... Dave Wilson joins us right now. Let's look at his stock of the day. David, what do you got? You're probably feeling a little crunched, Corey, if you've been hanging on to shares of Fossil Group over the years. I have not. Well, good for you then. This is the watchmaker and retailer. Their shares trade under the ticker FOSL. They peaked at a record in April 2012 and then plunged as much as 96% as consumers turned to smartwatches and gave up on shopping at department stores. The shares hit bottom in November at $5.50. That was the lowest price since 2000. 
Analysts abandoned Fossil along the way. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows KeyBank Capital is now the only one of 11 firms that's following the company to recommend buying the stock. There are six hold ratings and four sells. Well, today, Fossil got back above $10 as the possibility of a takeover surfaced. The news service Street Account reported on speculation that the private equity firm Toma Bravo might be interested in a buyout. The story cited a potential price of about $15.75 a share. Now, Fossil didn't return a call seeking comment about its stock performance. But there was plenty to talk about today, though. The shares had their biggest one-day gain since August as they rose just a bit more than 10%. Yeah, quite a run, right? And they're up, what, 29% this year so far. Well, the consider... Big short interest in the name. 43% uh, huge. of the short. Yes. Yeah, I mean, consider this is a stock that plunged last year by something like 70%. In fact, exactly 70%, pretty much. So, mm. long way to go. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.